Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome to the second season of Just Sustainability. Thank you for joining me for the third episode of the conversation that I had with Taylor Brogan. Last time, Taylor and I spoke about biases and how he approaches telling stories that resonate with broad audiences. In this episode, we extend that conversation. One of the things I appreciate most about Taylor's work is that he somehow weaves together stories about being gay and diabetic with broad social commentary about discrimination and the harms associated with extractive industries. I found how he naturally and organically ties together such seemingly disparate topics fascinating, so I asked him about it. This is what he said. One of the things I really love uh, about your work is how you tie in like right your experience being queer or like diabetes with like kind of broader issues like right oil and like climate change. Uh, so I guess the, it, what I'm trying to do is invite you to talk a little bit about the specifics yeah. of your work. Like what are some of the things that you write about? What are the stories that you try to tell? Yeah, well, and thank you for saying that and, and being appreciative of what I'm trying to do. It's, it's one of those things, cause again, I, this isn't false humility. I think at base, I'm just a really lazy person that I'm just like, <laughs> you know what I want to do? It's like, I want to sit back and watch Shit's Creek and like eat chocolate truffles and have like, you know, a gin martini at 5 p.m. and like some really good cheese and just like go on with my life, you know, in that way. Mm-hmm. But in that laziness is an abiding frustration and what I see happening in the world. And it's, it's probably some residue from growing up Lutheran and being a, a dropout seminarian that, you know, I view mm-hmm. the Bible as an incredible piece of literature and one I take as seriously as I take Walt Whitman, you know, I mean, nothing's more insane than the book of Job. I mean, my Mm. God, whoever wrote that was on psychotropic drugs, you know, it's like (laughs) God in the whirlwind asking you questions. I'm like, that's what I say to my students. I go, why the hell do you watch reality television? Are you kidding? Like the old Testament is where it's at. Like where on earth are you going to get someone like hoisting a stone? And God says, kill your son if you believe in me it's like what the fuck is going on here you know like this is a wild people down and fish for three days you know in their acidic bellies but but to me to the actual part that that pushes me into this realm of different stories is you know it comes from the gospel of saint luke to whom much is given much is expected and i think i was given this large playground of western north dakota i mean i yes I got to watch huge mantles of clouds build during this time of the year only to unleash hail or, or, or rain. And that's a big canvas to paint against. Mm-hmm. And that when you survey sort of the landscape of American letters in particular, which is probably what I know best rather than uh, global letters, you find we are in a very, a very impoverished culture with, mm-hmm. with the books and the stories that we're, that we've historically had or that have been um, sort of lifted up. Mm -hmm. And I think my way into my stories is that inherently I work on things and and this isn't necessarily conscious. Again, this is my laziness. It's just sort of like, Oh, this is what I know, but it's (laughs) things that make people uncomfortable. 
people don't want to think about that we're living in a time of mass species die off. You know, and I don't write that necessarily in my work. It's illuminating the industry that my family has historically worked in and that I've benefited from and lamenting mm-hmm. uh, the destruction of the landscape that gets at that idea. People don't want to think about their bodies and um, that our bodies inherently erode. You know, people at my age in their mm-hmm. early 30s, most, especially men, think uh, they can keep building muscle forever and they're always going to be buff and all of these things in that it, it's not so much, I mean, again, this gets back to my laziness. It's not to advocate just a, a lazy, whatever that means to us, uh, lifestyle. It's more to say erosion is our baseline existence. It just is. And so if we take that metaphor and explore it, what does that mean? And how do we lean into the lamentation of loss while also having humor, while also maybe looking for ways that what my body is going through because of the ravages of diabetes might be a way to tap into what the planet is currently experiencing, while also being able to tap into why is it that we don't like to talk about actual health? We don't talk about, you know, restorative justice in the way that we don't talk about getting me off of certain pills I'm prescribed. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of like it's easier to plunder the planet with pipeline than it is to create an imaginative existence that actually is healthy for us and the planet. That's harder work. That's exciting work to me. Mm-hmm. But it, it it's through exploring i think those queer narratives and part of it is uh it's the uh, why i keep like joking about being lazy is because i realize the culture i've grown up in is lazy right because if it weren't i mean here's one for you that there's this interview of um Annie Prue, whose work i really admire um an interview of her from 2014 and hopefully she never you know gets wind of what I'm about to say. But, uh, <laughs> she says in this interview, it, it, it just riles me up. She goes, you know, I don't get enough thank you letters from gay people for writing Brokeback Mountain. Oh, And I just thought, uh, why should I thank you for writing a story I already know? Right. Like, that is why I can't live in the American West. Because it's incredibly violent. Right. Like, it's not a story about two men who it's, I don't need a happily ever after but that it's implied in the story. The movie does this more explicitly, but in the actual story, it's implied that one of the characters gets killed. Well, we know that to be true for queer people in the American West. You know, um, we have examples of that, of course. Um, Why is it that in so far as I know, I've been asking this now for years, uh, my next book will be the first book of gay nonfiction in the American West. Yes. My life isn't a fiction. So when we say, oh, well, there are, you know, there are queer characters that Louise Erdrich writes about in her work, like, and I'm grateful for that, you know, mm-hmm. it, it largely is queer characters come up in indigenous literature um, in the American West. It, it's, uh, why are we still living in a time where it feels risque to write about the reality of our lives? Mm-hmm. Um, or even just to people, live the reality you know, of your lives. Right, right, exactly. That. Why is it that 
um, you know, when I'm at a bar in Yak, Montana, I have to worry about um, wearing chacos. Yes. You know, or not being from there, you know, or worried about that. Well, I better leave this bar before nightfall. Um, cause that could get a little dicey. Yeah. You know, um, what is it about the stranger that gets people to inflict violence or the risk of that? Um, and I, I think part of it with, with my work, Clement, is that I also want to disabuse people of the notion that we've actually progressed in such a radical way. Mm-hmm. Now, there are major things, of course, that are good. I can get married in any state in this country, Mm -hmm. of course. You know, we're hopefully getting rid of more discriminatory laws, things like this. And yet, every year, 40% of LGBT youth contemplate killing themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is our culture so good? Have we really progressed if that is still the baseline case? That means almost at some point, when you look at the landscape of queer friends that Mm -hmm. people have, one in two of those people have contemplated killing themselves. That's horrific. It is. And and part of that is, I would say, the responsibility as being artists and thinkers is to highlight stories so that people don't feel alone. I mean, that comes back to a woman once wrote to C.S. Lewis in you know the 1960s and said, Mr. Lewis, why is it that we read? And he wrote back a very short response. He said, we read to know we're not alone. Right. I mean, I can get welled up thinking about that, you know, because I, I do think when we look at, you know, you talked about West Virginia earlier or these other, why is it that we have an opioid ep- epidemic? Mm-hmm. Well, the systems that we've created are, be- you know, predicated on oppression. Mm-hmm. And we don't have enough stories to show us the way out or how to exist or that we even should be proud of who we are. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we don't want to think about disabled people because it reminds us of our own mortality mm-hmm. or of um, that makes me uncomfortable or we make judgments, you know, of, oh, you have diabetes. It must be because of how you've, you know, you ate or um, that's on you or some previous sin from your past life, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, I think there is at base a residual frustration in me that parallels that laziness that transforms that laziness into work Mm -hmm. is that okay there's not a book of gay literature about growing yeah about growing up gay in the american west therefore i will write it Mm -hmm. you know and then i hope other people will write their stories um there there's increasing work being done around disability and environmental issues Thank goodness. Mm-hmm. I want to be a part of that work, you know, in that it's, it's, it's through untangling some of this. I think that we, we get out of our heads that I'm alone in the world. And it gets back to that sense of curiosity, how you and I can relate to each other mm-hmm. is that we share more in common than on the surface, what we might think would let's even say divide us. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's through exploring that particular story that if I think, okay, I can just bitch about being disabled. I mean, I can do that all day long. I'm, I'm happy to do that, you know. But if I'm thinking deeper, I'm thinking about where does that resonate in other aspects of human existence? Mm-hmm. 
climate change, one of the biggest topics of our lives. But it can also get into uh, endocrine disruptors, which historically impact black and brown communities more than white communities. Well, that also leads to injustice. There are, it's like peeling back an onion. If you take any topic, a singular topic, and peel back the layers, you'll find it's more multifaceted. Uh, and it relates to a lot of other things. That's a little bit about what I'm thinking about with my own work mm-hmm. of, of they might sound like particular things to say, oh, you're working on, you know, writing essays about being disabled or right. about being queer. Um, but it's the lens into which I can get into larger topics, right. I think, or more, um, expansive ways of getting people to ask other questions. Everything you said makes me think of a question that uh, it's actually a little off script, right? So, like for the listeners, I I tend to send uh, guests a list of topics that I think I'm going to talk about, and this topic I'm going to ask you about isn't actually on that list that I sent you, but it arose from the some the stuff you said. So, I think you're being excessively humble and maybe just outright lying when you say that like you're lazy, <laughs> you're not thinking about these things. <laughs> I'm glad you're challenging me at this right, Clement. Maybe I am lying. Yes. Yeah. Cause it strikes me as deeply false. I, 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 from like what I know of you, you're very thoughtful about what you do. Very intentional, very reflective, right? I, I don't think a, a, a word gets on a piece of paper that, that, that you write that you haven't thought about for at least five or 10 minutes. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I, I think you are you you're very intentional in the, what you're doing, and so I want to ask you about your advice, right? So, for folks who are trying to tell stories, for folks who are trying to like think about common experience, thinking about these difficult conversations that we need to have that are like around sustainability, around equity. What's your advice, right? Like, how what have you realized in like all the work that you've done and all the sort of the, the kind of the wrangling of, uh, of, you know, of stories to get them into stories that like can take the particular and say something general. What is your advice for someone like from someone who's been doing it for a long time? I mean, it, it comes right from George Orwell's, you know, why write number one writers have egos. Mm. And like, I mean, in that, you know, I, again, I try to do the whole Buddhist notion, dissolve the ego, dissolve the ego, you know, or I, you know, in the part of the world I grew up, you know, even if you got first place, it was like, don't think you're so special, Taylor. You know, it it was, you know, a lot of like, you know, which is, you know, I'm trying, I'm trying my best, you know, but the rule number one for in Why Write by Orwell is, you know, one must have an ego. Mm -hmm. So even though I'm striving to be humble, I, I mean, uh, let me be clear. I, I do believe what I have to say is so unearthly important right. that you should take time to read it. Right. Like, and you have to, but like at base, whether every writer admits it or not, that is what they're doing. Right. Um, you don't do this. You don't struggle to get it as close to right as possible. Um, if you don't believe that, I just, I just refuse to believe like, Oh, uh, you know, you can write privately for yourself, but I'm talking about the difference between keeping it and actually putting it out in the world, because it also has to mean you're open to debate, being wrong, um, hopefully apologizing if you misstep. Um, uh, That for me, you you have to believe, you just have to believe in that. Mm -hmm. And, And so... People who sort of say, oh, nothing interesting happens in my life. Well, maybe those are the people that then 
should write fiction. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I mean, I, I don't know, you know, but I'm, I'm just sort of like, I'm still working to try to get to a point where I, you know, I could, I mean, if we had universal health care, this would change the game, but <laughs> where I could just exist on my writing because I, there are not, I do love teaching. Yeah. I would like to do a lot less of it in terms of, um, I think it keeps me sharp in certain ways, but I literally am cognizant through um, related to my work being disabled that the end of my life does not look pleasant. And I, mm-hmm. I so I think that's part of it. That's what fuels me is that I know I have to work my ass off um, to be uh, getting these books as far along. My advice is it's that tried and true thing of, you know, read widely, but read deeply and not Mm -hmm. just read literature. We should know something about philosophy or economics or even engineering. You know, I mean, I've been working on a novel and I grew up in a a huge agrarian society as well as an extractive one. And I didn't want anything to do with these things, but Mm -hmm. like the main protagonist of this novel is somehow, somehow I'm writing about fucking farmer. I know nothing about farming, you know, but it's, but, but, but that cracks open a lot of questions for me in my work about seasonal existence and planting. The early stage writers, um, I really do believe should be working almost every day. Mm-hmm. And, and that can take a variety of forms, you know, and I, I do this with my students. I sort of am overly ambitious in what I assign but um, but of saying you have to put in the time and it has to be in some ways volume. It's almost like what, you know, those insane bodybuilders do where they're just cramming calories into their body to mm-hmm. put on masses. I, I do feel that you have to have a wide understanding of what's happened before to have something to say now. And that's mm-hmm. not too... Uh, hold us back it's um god i mean these are the hard things about how do we be prescriptive in writing it's like for every rule there's a million other rules but you know at base someone who i'm grateful that's come back into my life and i think is just uh we should be reading a lot more of is john steinbeck i mean Mm -hmm. i know of no better prose stylist i mean everyone should read chapter 15 of the grapes of wrath for may's diner Mm -hmm because of the rhythm and the syntax and how he creates characters. It's, um, yeah, people who, who want to write, I, I think they need to have large real estates of time in their head mm-hmm. that they can devote to shaping and thinking about things. Like it's, it's why I had to, you know, <laughs> I had to get a two bedroom apartment so I can, you know, have this other room where I can spread my notebooks out on the floor right. and look at them and just be like, Oh my God, there's so much in my head that I'm trying to move around. You, I think it's that level of obsession. Right. Um, and, and, and to be hungry, you know, and, and again, it's that idea of you have something to say, but at the end of the day, it does take work. So yes, maybe I'm outright lying about being lazy. <laughs> it's not like I have a direct telephone line to God, if there is a God, and I get a perfect sentence, you know, but it's literally, um, 
you know, I couldn't map out antecedents or things like that. I don't even know what those are right. in a sentence. I write completely by ear, like E.B. White, because I trust in rhythm and music. But I think that's come through a long life of reading mm -hmm. and other artistic, you know, of actually listening to music and thinking about how does the structure of a symphony model, you know, mirror onto a structure of a book? Mm -hmm. Could I create movements? And how does a movement accelerate, not only maybe in speed, but maybe in tension? And it ends with a flourish, you know, um, and then we take a breath and we move on to another movement. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's having, yeah, I guess at base to be blunt, Clement, you have to believe that what you have to say is so unearthly important that you have to say it. Mm -hmm. And then you have to have a hunger to spend a lot of time learning your craft through reading other people. And you have to, yeah, you have to believe it. You know, you have to believe like I could try and maybe it could be good. Um, because largely you're not going to get a life-changing advance, yeah. probably. Maybe you will. That's great. But like at the end of the day, I want to write something to help people feel less alone because I have benefited from that. And I think that's an act of generosity. And for me, there is a sort of in, internal sense of responsibility to uh, people who are different or my part of the world mm. because my part of the world is so impoverished with its lack of writers yeah. that I thought, well, okay, then I can contribute some stories and maybe it'll rile people up enough that they go, that's not right. I'm going to write my own books, <laughs> you know, um, that would be great. You know? No, I, I think what you said, uh, again, really resonates with me. I think there's a reason why I really enjoy your work is it often <laughs> the things you say resonate with me um, because the, the, the exact same the you were giving your advice uh, framing it for uh, aspiring writers or like young writers and i'm hearing it as for anyone who's working on equity right so like or like yeah. anything right so like you need to believe what you're doing is important and that you can do it even in the face of like evidence that suggests that you might be tilting at windmills right uh and then you need to like pay attention and listen and hear the stories that are out there so that you can learn from those stories. You can incorporate those stories in your story. And so that the work you're doing is actually good. Um, yeah. And true, you know, and I think that, um, you know, sort of moving into working on a novel of which I hope will be of many. Um, it's also very uncomfortable for me because mm -hmm. I'm working in this one. It, it covers about 1910 to the farming crisis in the eighties. Um, it turns out some of the characters are racist, right? It turns out people are still racist in modern America. You know, that's the other thing about sort of disabusing my own self of, of, I obviously want us to progress. I want there to, you know, I want our systems to be rooted to justice, right? To believe that what, you know, I'm working on a novel means that, um, you know, at base, I hate brown and black people. That's not true. Mm -hmm. You know, there are people in the world who are racist. And I think to have a multifaceted layering of our work, we need to go into those uncomfortable places. Right. Some of us. Um, and some of us who have the ability to highlight uh, that complicated existence, to reflect, to maybe have characters where we go, 
shit, I really don't like that person. And yet right. maybe there's something where they sponsor the um, pancake banquet for Farmer Johnson's <laughs> cancer fund, you know? And so yeah. they're a complicated person because over here, I don't like them and I shouldn't like them. No. And, and what does that also say about the culture we live in? And, and to your, to your observation around equity, I think particularly in the world of writing, this is true, I think, in the other arts, though I can't ex- speak as uh, directly about it. Mm-hmm. Sharing a story is an act of generosity and hopefully of equity. Because if I share my story, I hope you'll share a story with me. Mm-hmm. And then maybe I'll share another story or I'll retell your story to someone else mm-hmm. and say, you know, I learned this thing from this story I once heard. It makes the world far more complicated. And it makes us, that's maybe the sense of humility. And I chafe against like, do I write for myself? Yes, because I have an ego and I love seeing my name in print. I'm addicted to it, <laughs> you know, but it's, it's, it's one of those things where I'm not writing only to puff myself up. And I think that's the other transformative part of this is, is also the pitfall of politics. Mm-hmm. If we only want policies that benefit people who look like me, who think like me, uh, that's not radical, yeah. you know? And so I think, I think a equitable framework for storytelling looks at pushing our own comfort zones. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and I think for me, I have so much to write about that. You know, I, I get why people say the whole idea of stay in your lane or write what you know, or things like that. Um, I, I think I just have so much, that I won't get to work on in my life that I don't have to worry about having to invent some character who's so radically different from me, mm-hmm. you know, and then, and then um, it, it's more a living into a world of what I do know that maybe gets out to the fringes of what I don't know. Mm-hmm. And that that's where things kind of get interesting to me. It's like, I don't know what it's like to be a lawyer, but maybe I can write a short story about a lawyer and then I learn about it, you know, or right. I, um, it, it, it's those sort of, yeah, I, I, I guess that's kind of it that I think a creative life, it's still, I'm just beating a dead horse here, but it, at root, it's coming back to being curious mm-hmm. rather than to being conservative in your thinking. And I don't even mean that politically. It means the people I like bat- best who live into old age, who are with it, still ask questions. Right. They don't pardon me they don't bitch <laughs> they might bitch about their ailments but they're not they're they're not shut off to the world yes you know they yes they ask yes and questions or what do you think about this they don't say things like well or actually or but at the beginning of their sentences <laughs> you know uh those people just drive me up the wall you know they're not going to be good artists right we've reached the end of another episode in this episode, Taylor Broadby and I had a wide-ranging conversation about how he weaves together stories about queerness, disability, extractive economies, and discrimination. In that conversation, Taylor told us about the importance of trusting that one's work is important, but tempering that trust and confidence, with the humility to recognize that one also needs to listen and to work to ensure that one's work reflects the truth. Please join me again on the next episode of Just Sustainability, where we'll listen to the final part of the conversation that I had with Taylor Broadby. <laughs> 
Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening. Thank you.